we're working to live, right? But the majority of our time is still taken up by the work or just sleeping or eating, you know, doing the things that are the necessities to, to live. Again, we need to find time for the life parts. A lot of that in what financial therapy can help with is kind of prioritizing those goals. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. I am delighted and pleased you are here for another episode. For the returning listeners, welcome back. For new ones, welcome. This week, we have Dr. Bruce Ross on the show. He's an assistant professor in the Family Sciences Department at University of Kentucky and serves as the Program Director for Consumer Economics and Family Financial Counseling. He is an accredited financial counselor and a certified financial therapist. Dr. Ross has spent a lot of his professional career in shaping the Financial Therapy Association. During this discussion, we talk about many interesting areas, like the impact, the significant impact of our early money memories, understanding and overcoming limitations set by these memorable money memories. We dive into what is financial therapy and why everyone, and I underline that, why everyone can benefit from it, the concept of financial socialization and how it affects our financial decisions, and how we can balance financial demands and daily lives and overcome these challenges in a healthy manner. We also dive into, towards the end, the role of financial identity, the role it has in our money stories. And we touch on how money is more than money. It's a representation of our core values. And we can't forget that fact. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. Bruce Ross. Bruce, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Excited. I'm excited to have you. I'm looking forward to this conversation. So Bruce, your credentials, your experience and education is quite deep in knowledge. You're accredited financial counselor, certified financial therapist. You have a PhD with an emphasis in marriage and family therapy with a specialization in financial counseling and financial therapy practices. But I thought we'd start and take it back to where it all began in the school lunchroom. <laughs> Do you remember the first time you had to budget your lunch money and what kind of snacks you had to decide or if you could decide to afford? Let's start here and talk about those early money experience, experiences and how they've shaped you today. Yeah. So growing up in like second, third grade, we had these like little lunch cards that you like cashed in and you had like 
you would put like $20 and they had like little check marks around it for like 50 cents, a dollar, $5. And they, they'd be marked off. So you're carrying around a lunch card instead of actual cash with you. It made it a little bit easier. But my parents came up with this thing of, well, here's your $20 for the week and then go buy a card. But I had like friends and other other students that were just like, whenever they needed a card, they got a new card. But I was set to that $20 for the week. So $5 for a lunch each day. And in turn, that made me start actually learning to budget. So starting in like second grade, I had to like figure out my meal plan of I could only spend $5. And if I went over $5, then I didn't have enough maybe for the next day. What ended up happening in the beginning, and I think all through second grade, is I was very, very conservative in what I bought for lunch. Like I did not get snacks. I did not get desserts for like Monday through Thursday. And then Friday, then I could like get my normal meal and I could get a big dessert and I could spend a little bit more. But it really did kind of start this process of learning to like budget my expenses in real time. Now, I will say with a caveat, my parents weren't going to let me go hungry. I could always pack a lunch or something and bring that in. Um, there was always that option. But I don't know. I think it was, it, it really was kind of a foundation of making me learn basic kind of financial principles around organizing my money, thinking about and planning out how I spent my money and making sure that I had enough really because I'd rather have a hot meal than packing, you know, a ham sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> so many different areas I find actually fascinating about that. I think what I want to ask is, in this case, the outcome, you know, in a, in a way it was a positive. Like you learned how to budget. You learned that, you, mm -hmm. you know, you had that safety net if you needed it. But you learned that, that I had to budget and I had to make decisions, trade-offs. Regardless of what our outcomes are, like in your case, it was a positive one. Your your answer really reinforces just the influence that these early memories have on our financial outcomes, even as adults, because you're sitting here after all of the education you told me about. And I know I directed this question on towards the school lunchroom, but this is still playing a significant role despite completing a PhD. What have you seen, learned, and experienced through your students, through all your research of these form, formidable money memories. And, and I asked this because we talked about this a lot in the podcast, but I think at times people are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew that that's what happened and they move on from it. But how powerful are these memories? Oh, extremely powerful. I mean, we're conditioned and, I, and really, I guess what I'm talking about here is kind of a, it's a social conditioning of, you know, teaching children how to behave, how to think, how to plan you know, through their childhood on a whole bunch of, in all manner of different areas with that they're learning through math or social studies or et cetera. But like, there is that aspect of conditioning with our finances too, right? And so I think that's really what it gets at in we're conditioning. And as we form those strong conditions, we're also forming these strong memories we're forming these strong like value systems around how we operate with, well, anything really in life. But I mean, in this case, especially money. So I can't emphasize enough the importance, I guess, of that memory formation. I mean, and 
honestly, I mean, most memories are because it was something significant. If I'm remembering back to second grade, and I don't remember my classes, really, I don't remember all my teachers, I don't remember all the conversations, but I do remember that. And because I do remember that, that means typically that there is some type of strong reaction, there's some type of strong emotional connection, there's some type of strong behavioral or cognitive connection that is there. And for me, I think it was actually because it ended up being a very positive experience. There was probably a lot of pride associated with it that I'm like doing these adult things as a child. But also I, I do like, I think the flip side of it, I don't want to picture it as such like a perfectly rosy picture. I wasn't, I mean, I was still in, you know, second, third grade and just like adults do, we all make mistakes. And like, sometimes I would forget my card. So then I would have to learn to like borrow from friends. And I do remember kind of the anxiety about asking, you know, to borrow money from a friend for lunch and I'd pay them back. And I remember there was always one friend you could always borrow from, but he charged interest. So I actually learned like, and now that I look back on it, it was like 125% interest. Oh. It was crazy. <laughs> um, but you had to, you had to pay interest for you know, borrowing for that day. And so, okay, well, now I have to rebudget the rest of kind of the week. There's all these memories that actually helped form a lot of my financial behaviors, I think, later on, but there were strong emotional connections to those memories, which is why they were so powerful for me. Mm. So while we don't have to name names, this 125% interest person, do you know what this, this individual is doing today? I have no idea. <laughs> we went, we went on to different, uh, like middle schools, high schools, uh, or, you know, later schooling. So I have no idea. Now I'm maybe, you know, it's something with finances, so, <laughs> you know, uh, maybe a loan processor or something. Yeah. <laughs> that went through my mind. So yeah, I, I think it's, it's so fascinating. You talk about the social conditioning and like you, I don't know, we were just talking, you're, you're, you live in Kentucky. I live in Canada. Our social constructs are, you know, we live in both North America, but they're different. And so it's interesting how we would interpret these memories, these money memories based on the, like the social narrative that we, we are directly influenced from. So one last question about yourself. When you zoom out from that grade two to even today, when you reflect back on other memorable moments that helped you become what you're doing today with this focus in financial therapy. Are there other moments that you're like, ah, that looking back, I can connect the dots. That's what really made me interested in the therapy, the financial therapy side of money. Yeah. I mean, for me, it probably wasn't specific moments. I could probably narrow it down to specific like types of moments in that I come from a financial family. Both my parents are or have worked in trust departments for bank, for large banks. My brother and sister-in-law, you know, his wife, they, they've gone into finances. I teach finances. Everybody in my family does something with personal finance. But I think because of that, and going back to the condition, and we were conditioned to probably go into finance, my younger brother and I, but we were conditioned because we always talked about it. Money was never like a taboo subject like it is in so much of our at least our u.s society that it was always talked about and that was our dinner conversation every night it was talking about 
different financial issues that my parents were seeing at the bank, different clients, different strategies for financial planning. And then, and we would have these talks. I mean, I remember even during my coursework in high school or in college, or even in my doctoral program, talking to my dad and he would like quiz me on different financial like issues. And like, and he would like give me these little vignettes and he's like, what would you do here? So I, I realized I had a very, very unique situation growing up where I had this, I had regular money conversations. Like it was just normal, which we know is not normal. <laughs> so I think part of me going into this field of financial therapy is realizing the power and the impact that just having conversations, having open conversations about money with your family and how much easier it becomes to think about money in your own life, how much easier it becomes to kind of set up different financial plans and then also just talk about it with your own partners and your own relationships and just be able to process it. It becomes a lot easier. And so I really liked the aspects of financial therapy, kind of dealing with the relational aspects, the relational dynamics and the conversations you have with other family members growing up. And even till today, like even today, I'll say around Christmas time, my family gets together and we have a financial talk about our financial goals for this year, how we did this past year, what our goals are for like retirement, or are we on track for that? We still just sit around the couch. And I mean, now it's probably with a nice glass of wine or I'm in Kentucky, so a bourbon. But, you know, we didn't do that as a kid, obviously, but the, the conversations continue. And there's always that opportunity to be open, to ask questions, to engage with it. And yeah, I mean, just really be a part of it. When you engage in these conversations, and especially with all the the learnings you've done in marriage and family therapy, in what ways at all are these conversations about values and core beliefs as opposed to just money? And, and I say that because I think often we we talk about our money, but they're just like underneath. It's it, maybe it's a disagreement, but it's a clash of maybe values over money. I want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. So one, I guess I'll, I'll back up and say every conversation about money is really about values and core beliefs. Like every conversation. I like how you said every. I mean, yeah, we're not sitting around and like balancing checkbooks at like, you know, these family talks. We're, we're talking about life goals. And I will say also every conversation about life goals is a financial conversation. What you're going to do in retirement, how you're going to spend your time and your money, having conversations about your kids or your work or environment or really anything else, any big transition in your life, any big goal in your life is still a financial conversation, whether you want to acknowledge that or not. And so you can't have a life goal conversation without thinking about, am I in alignment with my values? Is this really what I want to do? Is this really how I want to spend my time or spend my efforts or spend my money, essentially? Like, is that all in alignment? I think also just because there's such a, a strong emotional reaction to talking about our money, like it, we're very... We hold on to 
our money, we have very personal reactions. We have very emotional reactions, right? Money is tied into so many strong, deep emotions like shame, anxiety, fear, guilt. Those are all products of our value systems, right? Like why else would we be feeling guilt about our money choices or lack of money choices sometimes? I mean, because we have strong values attached to those. So yes, to to answer, (laughs) I guess your question is all of our conversations, all of our money conversations, all of our life planning or life goal conversations, all of our relational goal conversations are associated with our values. You're using words all every yeah. conversations is you linked can't get away it. from it. I know, okay. I, and I hate like you should never say all or never, um, except in that statement right in the beginning. But it's true. I mean, I, I cannot think of a scenario that doesn't involve your money considerations. Finances are part of everything we do, right? Um, they're part of every life goal. Even if your goal is to just sit on a boat, fish all day, doesn't cost any money to do that, right? Theoretically, once you're at that point in life. But you have to get to that point in life. There are financial decisions. There are financial processes that you have to consider to get to that point, to have that time, to have the boat, to have the maybe the lake house, to... I mean, there's a whole bunch of different financial planning steps that are still going to go into that. I, I appreciate the conviction you have using the words all and every. And I say that because like you talk, we're talking about this financial socialization that we all have been socialized in our direct environment to think and feel. Or it's nudged us or it influenced us. Yours is different because you're in Kentucky. Mine's different because I'm in Alberta. All of these things, these money memories have all played a role in how, where we are today. And I guess it would be very difficult to imagine that they don't impact how we're thinking and feeling with money. This brings me to, at times, there are people who, when I have conversations, they hear financial therapy. So a lot of your work in financial therapy, they're like, whoa, financial therapy, I'm not broken. I'm okay. (laughs) I don't need that. Can you help us understand who is financial therapy for? What does it seek to, what does it seek to do? Well, I'm going to use, I guess, another all statement then is I think financial therapy can be for everyone, right? I'm going to be strong in that, that I think it can help anyone because, you know, we've been talking about a lot of like, you know, financial socialization and conditioning that doesn't happen in isolation, right? The the context of our upbringing, um, how we've interacted with family members, what they have taught us both explicitly, implicitly, that matters. That shapes our future interactions. It it shapes our future behaviors, how we think about things, how we emotionally react or regulate to certain, you know, processes. And so financial therapy can help us really uncover and understand those processes. I mean, when you go back to what's the point of the family, you know, what is the point of us socializing in any capacity, not just finances, but socializing in any capacity. It's to build support, build some type of nurturance, build regulation around things um, of what to do, what not to do, how to handle your reactivity, right? And so 
if we're thinking in that context, then yes, that's going to shape our future relational aspects or our future relational interactions with future partners, with future friends, with work colleagues, or even our bosses. All of that kind of comes together. And I think financial therapy can actually be very, very helpful for everyone in kind of talking through and understanding your own processes of how you learn to behave, how you do. But also what, what I do really like about financial therapy is that it is still systemic. And so it's looking at how you're interacting with others, but it's looking at how they're interacting with you. And so especially from a relational lens, how people from, as, as you said, Sean, like I'm coming up from a different background than you in Canada. And so when we have partners that are coming together with coming up and trying to find out what their couple financial goal is, what their couple financial process is, well, we have to then figure out where they're coming from up, how they were so socialized, how they think about money or react to money and how they can work together, how they can find common grounds, how they can support each other as a partnership then. And I think that's a real strong benefit of financial therapy. So it's not for people that are just having problems. I think it can definitely help with people that are having problems, um, especially if there is emotional reactivity to finances. But it's also there just to make us better. Who among us can say like, yeah, my like financial and relational well-being is 100% perfect, right? No one can say that. That's an all statement. I will not make that. <laughs> what happens if they are? Is there something else that uh, they should be looking at? <laughs> they, they, they should probably, if they are thinking they're 100% perfect, maybe they should go to a financial therapist to really dig down into finding the, what, what those beliefs are about. <laughs> you know, as you're talking about this, I'm actively listening, but like a human, I'm, I'm lis listening to the chatter in my head. And I'm a financial planner by trade. And I got introduced to the Klontz's work about five or six years ago. It was my first entry into the money scripts, money stories. And I'm like, I feel like a piece of me unconscious to me was like, oh, you really need that. But the most of my convincing was like, oh, that's really good. You should, you should figure out more of that so you can use it in your practice so you can engage more clients and build a more profitable book of business. I'm like, all right, good idea. So I signed up for a course, the Klontz is at Crichton, and there's a lot of experiential learning. Mm -hmm. And when you say uncover and understand, I was like, whoa. And then the last five years has just been me playing with it on my own because it is it is fascinating. And I was someone who thought so blindly distracted, I can admit it, that I had it figured out and I was going to do this to help my clients. I'm like, okay, there is a lot of interesting things. So yeah, I, well, I'm, I'm a, a believer in the work that you guys research and study. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, there are so many just unconscious money beliefs, money scripts um, that we have that they are unconscious. Well, like we, we don't even realize that these are things that are guiding our behaviors. I mean, even growing up in a financial like household, I was just like, oh yeah, this stuff is obvious. I think I have it all together. And it wasn't until I was going through these processes and like my own coursework and my own research that I'm like, holy crap. Like there were so many things that I didn't even realize that it's just 
it's like just epiphany after epiphany that comes. Um, and so I, I think it goes to that concept, I guess, of you don't know what you don't know, mm-hmm. even about yourself. We're talking about the financial socialization, how it influences us. And then we're talking about financial therapy, everyone and all underlined bold. <laughs> <laughs> and before we were recording, we were just briefly chatting about this idea of the, the middle age person. A, it doesn't matter what age it is, but the experience that some of them have disclosed that they're feeling overwhelmed, raising kids, trying to work, socialize. We're socialized now. Maybe it's two working parents and we're still supposed to read with our kids and we're supposed to have all these demands. I feel at times it's quite, it could be a quite revealing time in our lives that's exposing elements of all the past stuff that we talked about that we might not be noticing yet if we haven't taken mm-hmm. the time to reflect. For people who are, whether it's middle age or any other moment in life that they're feeling this this strain, financial strains, demands, how, and it might be the answer we just said, but how can engaging in some of this financial therapy work be of benefit to them without making it too big? Because maybe people are like, I don't have time to like dig into my whole past. I don't have time for this. It's too overwhelming. So if someone's listening, maybe they're... Middle age, they're feeling financial constraints, work constraints. What would you offer for them for an invitation to start dipping their toe? Yeah, absolutely. So I feel like I can take this question in a lot of different directions here. Because, I mean, as you said, kind of this, or as we were talking about this midlife crisis, so to speak. I mean, it's it's a real phenomenon. Like it's continuing to happen. I think it's becoming even a bigger thing now because we have all this pressure on making sure that we're successfully launching children, that we are getting to making sure that we are successful and fine for retirement, that we're starting to, as we're launching children, that they're successful. But now we're going back and working on our own relationships with our spouse or, you know, there's lots of transitions happening there. Um, And so then we're, we're starting to reflect on have we been making the right choices? And and I always want to caution that when we're thinking about how our life has turned out, the choices that we've made, one, always give ourselves a bit of grace, right? There are always things that, yes, we could have done better. There are mistakes that we have made. But one, look at the mistakes and see what lessons you've learned from them. And two, again, Give yourself some grace because we're not perfect. We don't know everything. And I think that's to your question is, I think that's where financial therapy can come into play. And honestly, yeah, we we are very busy, but I think we can all carve out an hour, like an hour a week. And now with financial therapy services and practitioners growing so much that there are so many virtual services available now that if you can't hop on for a Zoom call during your lunch break for an hour, once a week, then there's probably a lot of other like kind of time management and just general planning issues that we probably need to work on that means financial therapy is probably even more so for you, right? If you're listening to this and thinking, I don't have an hour in the week, then that's probably even doubly so why you need to actually start scheduling it. I mean, mean, it gets to this concept of work-life balance, 
which is now, I think, a lot of the research is kind of shifting to work-life integration because it's impossible to find balance is the kind of prevailing belief, right? We've got eight, 10 hours at work every day. And then we've got hopefully, you know, seven, eight hours of sleep. So the majority of our time is is spent working or sleeping. There's not a whole lot of balance for the actual life part. Isn't that fascinating, hey? Well, you just said there's not for the life part. Right. I mean, the things that actually matter. I mean, we're working to live, right? So, but the majority of our time is still taken up by the work or just sleeping or eating, you know, doing the things that are the necessities to, to live. But again, we need to find time for the life part. And a lot of that in what financial therapy can help with is kind of prioritizing those goals, prioritizing your time, how it's spent, how you spend the money making sure that you have proper planning to get to a point during retirement or later on in your life where you can actually focus a little bit more on the life part. You know, your your explanation or your answer makes me think of what's the cost of not finding that hour or two, whatever the time allotment is. Yeah. Well, the cost of not finding it is you're going to have to, I mean, you're going to have to figure it out at some point. And hopefully before it's too late. I mean, honestly, you can kind of stumble through and maybe find it later on or continue to have maybe some some of the struggles, maybe continue to not understand some of the unconscious memories, the unconscious beliefs that are guiding your behaviors, positively or negatively. But yeah, the real cost is that you're going to continue to do what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to highlight that like, while I'm intentionally going back to those, everyone should could benefit of it, all people can, this is not rooted in your Bruce's self-help book that he just wrote one weekend at the lake. This is like evidence-based <laughs> research that that is lending itself beyond financial therapy or financial psychology, rooted in psychology. Is that correct? On human behavior that you've, your field has now integrated together. So this is, yeah. I guess what I'm trying to say, this is happening, what you're talking about. This isn't Bruce's opinion. Right. No, this, I mean, this is evidence-based research integrated from disciplines across the mental health spectrum. So clinical psychology, social work, marriage and family therapy, all, and even a lot of life coaching work that has been growing. So like it, it's multiple disciplines, multiple areas of research that are kind of backing up and supporting these ideas. And when I say ideas, I don't mean just opinions. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, actual research. You shared with me something that shows that no matter how much information we have about the research, the evidence, embodying it, implementing, like it's a life process. We never get it figured out. And I understand that maybe you weren't done your total dissertation in the Great Recession, but uh, the market crash was something that caused you to freak out. And you were personally taking holding yourself accountable for that. Yeah. So again, growing up with parents that were heavily involved in my financial socialization process, earning, d- doing extra chores like for my parents or going and cutting my grandparents grass, their yard kind of thing, 
growing up. And then eventually, I think I started full-time work during the summer when I turned 14. So working 40 hours a week when I was 14. 14. And at 14, I had to get permission from the school that my grades were good. They had to sign a paper. My parents had to sign a paper and I could start working. Worked as an assistant's assistant for the Better Business Bureau was my first job. But the purpose of all of that was, or one of the conditioning aspects was that I had to contribute to an investment portfolio. So the conditioning part was then we would get my paycheck. It would be deposited into a savings account for myself. And then at the end of every year, I would go and take a portion of that and put it into an investment account. And then my parents would help me invest it. Right. So, I mean, it wasn't a whole bunch of money. It was a lot of money for me, but it, you know, it steadily grew and, you know, putting in a certain amount of funds every year. I mean, you know, it could be 500. It could be a couple thousand that I put in, but it grew. And by the time I turned 18, then my parents gave me like, you're like, it's your portfolio. You're an adult. You have control over this. And so I was like, okay, like I'm not going to really touch anything. I'll make a few trades. It's my money, but I'm going to be super cautious with it. And then what happens? The Great Recession. So all of the all of these accounts, the whole market crashes. And I'm looking at my portfolio and I've made a few trades and I'm like, it is down 40%. And this is all the money I have like in the world, basically. I have a small emergency fund in college. And then I have this portfolio that has dropped 40% and I am freaking out. And I'm like, what did I do? Not having the full understanding of like, this is the economy that is dropping. And that's literally, I think within four or five months, my portfolio was right back to where it was. Like the recovery period, like, and I remember having this conversation, freaking out like with my father and he's just like, it's okay. We've planned for recessions. You still have a diversified portfolio. It is not your fault. You're going to have many more recessions where your, your portfolio is going to tank. It's okay. We're going to weather the storm. We're going to wait it out. We're not going to panic. We're not going to have any type of anxiety induced sell offs. But there was that momentary like freak out of probably for like a solid week where I was just freaking out going, what did I do? How am I going to explain this? And, <laughs> but I do remember kind of the, the calming nature of like, we're going to get back on top. It's going to be okay. Just wait and see. You've done everything right. It'll work out. And so, I mean, I, and I, I did appreciate that a lot. Yeah. That, that's a really great story, especially after what we've been talking about, because I can imagine the, the the stress and anxiety came from, A, of course, losing money, but that pivotal moment of taking over the investment portfolio at 18, right. being socialized into this very you know family that talks about money and you probably don't want to let them down and feel like so, uh, you yeah. did something wrong. You could see how I think theory. I had control for about a month and a half, like full control on oh, my, yeah. for about a month and a half before the market started tanking. And I then probably the negative <laughs> self-talk comes in. And I think this is what's neat about financial therapy are just uncovering all of this stuff about ourselves so we can realize 
I guess, put some separation in that, in that fearful moment. Thankfully, your father was quite soothing with you. Yeah, but- it, it, it was very soothing. But I also don't think... So I, my risk tolerance became totally shot. So I have very low risk tolerance now for my own like investing. because mm-hmm. and, and it wasn't until later on as I got into the field of financial therapy that I realized like my risk tolerance is based off all of this pivotal moment here mm. that I like, I do not want to be risky with any of my like investments, mm-hmm. which being young is financially foolish just because there's so much time with compounding interest that I should be taking advantage of a little bit more of an aggressive portfolio right now. Another great example, because if you come to me as a financial planner, and I haven't been curious to figure out all this, other side of money, you telling me sitting across, I, I don't know how old you are, but you look... 35. Thir- okay. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're young. And you have all this time window. I'd look at you like, Bruce, there's something wrong with you. And it just speaks to the power of these experiences and the benefit of uncovering why our thoughts and feelings are are, are held the way they are in our beliefs. And in your case, like you said, if you could acknowledge that, well, it might be foolish, but this makes sense for me. I think that's important. Yeah. Well, and knowing that it's, yeah, it's foolish, but I still have this like emotional reaction to it. So I have found like financial, you know, investment advisors that are going to just invest mm-hmm. more aggressively for me. So that oh. I don't have to have that part. Like I know that is a something that is more of a risk for me in the long term. So finding someone else that can just take on that responsibility has been because I know where my limits are. Just don't log into the account. And the- <laughs> <laughs> no, I still I still monitor. I still check it. It's easier for me to have someone else, I guess, make those initial decisions. And I, and I still have like full say, I can always override something. I can change it or I can look at, redo the direction of, you know, my investments. But it is something that I can still, I still have say over, but I can, I acknowledge that where my limitations are and then make appropriate accommodations so that those limitations don't hinder me and my future financial success. Yeah, it really seems like a lot of this conversation, especially this last part, is really around just knowing why we're doing what we're doing is is the key. Yes, yes, exactly. That's that's well said. Knowing why we're doing what we're doing. I mean, it's just, I, I guess it can't get really any simpler than that. And I think part of it is just having these conversations. You know, having it, talking it out with someone that is an expert is great. Having it and having these conversations with family members and just the more you talk about it, the more you think about it, the more you relate to other people's experiences, like what your partner grew up with or what your children are experiencing and what they're learning. I mean, the more you talk, the more you can realize really just what's going on, what memories are coming up, how does that affect your own processes, right? So... Just have the conversation. Yeah. And I think having those conversations, you start to feel it as well. And you start to experience what it's like to have them. And, oh, that didn't feel good. Well, that could be an invitation to dive deeper into why. I see the time here. And I before we start recording, and we were briefly talking about this idea of financial identity. And I, I think it, it, it's quite interesting to me because like, we embody identities. I'm a father. I'm a husband. 
I'm a hockey fan and I got so lucky last night because the Edmonton Oilers beat the LA Kings in overtime. <laughs> and I don't know if I, I would probably had to cancel if they lost. I would have been distraught. <laughs> so I identify as a hockey fan a little too much. But anyways, you might need to unpack that a little bit. <laughs> oh, I went with a friend who had never gone to see me at hockey before him and his kid. And he's probably like rethinking that relationship. <laughs> with, anyhow, two more games and we can move on. Anyhow, financial identity. Okay. What is intriguing you with this idea of financial identity and what maybe it's excites or why are you curious about this concept of financial identity? I, I will say, and what we're talking about is it's an area of research that I, I'm starting to get into and really finding fascinating. And it, and it comes from this concept that we all tell stories about ourselves, right? We all have this, our own identity formation of who we are and, you know, thinking about, you know, what's your... 30 second elevator speech about who you are. Someone asks, you know, what do you do? What are you about? And, you know, you're going to talk about hockey, <laughs> Sean. You know, I, I might talk about things that, you know, my hobbies, what my job is, what my interests are. But we also have this identity that's related to our finances, I think. I mean, especially as we're growing up and entering adulthood. The research time and time again shows us, okay, what does it mean to be an adult? And what that is forming is our adult identity. And the things that keep coming up is, well, are these big like financial transition periods in our lives, like getting married, buying a house, being able to have kids and like successfully rear them be like graduating from college. But all of those are, as we said, like those are big life goals. Those are big life transitions. Those are all financial in nature. But one of the biggest things that routinely comes up still is financial independence that I want to get away from my parents, you know, paying for everything or even paying for some of the things that I want to be financially on my own that I know that I'm making it. And so I'm fascinated by this concept of coming up and, you know, all of a sudden we turn 18 and we're legal adults. Uh, more and more Americans are going to college, which I think is great. Um, but we're also extending this period that we have to rely on our parents. We're taking out loans. We're not feeling fully financially independent. And so what does it take to actually be an adult? And not just in legal sense, but what's it mean to be like a functioning adult? The research keeps pointing back to this process that we have to be financially capable. We have to be financially independent from others, you know, so they're not dependent upon them providing for us. But being financially capable ourselves, and I think a lot of that capability has to do with being financially responsible. And so when we're seeing this and, and the, the limited research that is out there right now, it's adulthood it, or perceptions of adulthood is postponed because of that. Because we have mounting credit card debts, we have mounting tuition debt from college or graduate programming housing prices are skyrocketing. So it's harder for younger adults to buy housing. 
um, or their first house. And so we're seeing kind of a delay in feeling like we're actually an adult, which then has implications on how we see ourselves and how we see our own identity. And I can go on and on and ramble about this. (laughs) (laughs) That's super interesting. And I like your word capable, like financially capable, because, you know, you hear more and more stories where people are, are living with their parents or siblings or friends. And, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. mm -hmm. I see what you're saying is, is, you know, I, I, this capable, you can be capable and still live together. Right. You know, and, and it could be the best financial move for you. Yeah. uh, moving back in after college with your parents so that you can actually save up and buy your first house or, you know, or have some type of family planning or save for, your, you know, that future retirement. Because we know like through compounding interest calculators, those first five, 10 years in, you know, in your through your 20s is the most critical for your retirement savings, right? You're going to have the most growth through those first 10 years of your life than the next 30 years after that. So, yeah, I mean, moving back home with your parents is not inherently bad. It could be actually some of the one of the best financial decisions you make and it shows that you are being financially responsible, financially capable. Mm-hmm. It does have effects on how we're perceived, maybe, or that how we're thinking about how we're being perceived. Right, us, yeah. Right, in our own identity formation. I mean, the fact of the matter is nobody thinks about you, like, really, like, nobody. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I'm not sitting around thinking about, like, and judging Sean, you know, on a random Tuesday night. No one's thinking about that, right? That might be earth shattering to some of us that you're actually not <laughs> like, what do you mean? Yeah, I think this is really, really interesting. This this inherent belief of being an adult. And on the other end, I would be interested to see that if I had a belief that to be an adult, I have to be incredibly accounting-wise financially responsible, meaning I'm hyper-focused on house, savings account, this, 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 or I'm disregarding like the relational side of being in a coupleship, but I'm so focused on financial, in my words, independence is the balance sheet. I could also see that, oh, maybe in two or unconscious, I actually don't feel like a full spouse because I know I'm discounting that. So I think it plays on both ends, this oh, idea of financial independence. Absolutely. I mean, there, there's there's definitely an integration there of relational identity, financial identity. Mm-hmm. And I mean, even just your our personal identities, <laughs> you know, your your love of hockey. I mean, it's all of it is wrapped up into the story that we tell about ourselves. Hmm. Super neat uh, research that you're doing. So my last question, I I have asked everyone this question. If you were at end of life, doesn't matter how old you are, you're sitting on a front porch, looking out at a meadow, mountain, ocean, something that brings you peace, ease, and contentment. You might even have a little glass of bourbon. You bring out a notebook and decide to write a letter on what you learned Bruce's perspective was key to have a happy and healthy relationship with money. What would be a theme to that letter? I think I want to go back to just being open to have a conversation about money with whoever you're with, whether, I mean, is that your family, your parents, your kids, 
your significant other, but being open to have that money conversation and to have it honestly to for yourself, but also being just genuinely curious about the experiences and about the thoughts and about the behaviors that your partner has, that your parents have had, that your kids have, whoever it may be, just be open to have that conversation. And part of being that open, I will say, is actually initiating that conversation. We know it's not always just going to spring up out of thin air. Somebody else isn't always going to initiate that. So be the person to initiate it and then be open for it. I like that last part, initiate it, but be open. Yeah. Because we might initiate and be narrow-minded, but uh, right. well, open it's just honest. It's kind of like, I mean, your podcast here. I mean, you 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 initiate it, but I mean, it can go in so many different directions. It It's fully just open to what we each say and how we have that conversation about money. Well, thank you. I like this honest, curious, and being open and initiate. Yeah. Well, Bruce, thank you so much. Thank um, you. It's been fun. Oh, good. I, I've had a great time. I uh, The time flew by. My curiosity has been piqued, though. In my little intake thing, that there's really only like five questions. What do you put <laughs> to pronounce your name? You put Bruce like the boss. Are you a boss fan? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've liked Bruce Springsteen. Uh, I think I also put like Batman. You did put Batman. And then as our um, our youngest niece, you know, immediately started referring to me as Bruce the Shark from Finding Nemo. Oh, okay. Uh, I think those are the three uh, most famous Bruces. Uh. <laughs> My socialization has been heavily around Bruce Springsteen. So I was wondering if, yeah, if you're going to catch him on the tour. He's on a tour right now. Yeah, no, I, I don't think I'm going to be able to catch him on this tour. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I grew up with, you know, hearing him on uh, the radio, having... Uh, Oh God, back in the day I had the cassette tapes yeah. <laughs> that, you know, you put, put your finger in and rewind it. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bruce, thanks so much. And if people are curious about the research you're doing, I, I don't know if you post stuff online, if you have your articles or your, your papers on your university site, but if people want to find you, where would you say? Yeah, they can find more information uh, about me just on my um, profile websites at uh, the University of Kentucky. Generally, you can find me on LinkedIn as well, but generally just searching my name, <laughs> you'll find information about me. Come to the Financial Therapy Association conference? Yes, you can always meet me, talk to me. I'm happy to have a conversation uh, at the Financial Therapy Association's conference. Um, that's every year. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Yeah, thank you. It's been great. On a mountain without a top My wealth is measured and now I spend my time But now I write a freedom story With every breath inhaled Money is not the boat of life It's just the wind in the sea